Hello, everybody. You're listening to a Bitcoin and Markets live stream. My name is Ansel Lindner, and on this show, I give you a unique perspective on Bitcoin, macro, and geopolitics. You can find me all over. Follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. The Telegram channel is doing really well, so go to t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets to join there to listen to these live streams live. You can find the show in any podcast app. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets or go to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash find dash us and you can find most big podcast apps will be listed there. We're also on Rumble and Odyssey so you can find our channels and go subscribe and give us likes so we can um, reach more people over there on those video apps. We have lost our YouTube channel. And lastly, make sure you're subscribed over on bitcoinandmarkets.com to get notified of all of my content. All right, let's jump in to today's topics. Oh, maybe it's not live. It says connecting. Anyway, we'll get started. So, hey guys, welcome to another live stream. Today is Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. And just uh, looking over my shoulder here at Twitter Spaces, still has not come up. But we'll let that connect. I hope it does come up. Um, uh, what else? Oh, I did have my report come out, or not my report, my uh, article come out on Bitcoin Magazine, which I'm going to find right now and link to it in Telegram. The title is Deglobalization and the End of Trust-Based Money Set the Stage for National Bitcoin Adoption. That was a pretty good title that they came up with. I just had the first part of that and they added in the Bitcoin stuff, but um, yeah, we'll pull this up. Maybe I could read through a little bit of that on this live stream. We'll see. Okay, well, let's start out with a couple charts, and I posted them over there on Telegram, of course. The first one is the Bitcoin chart, and just showing how utterly flat it has been. The range that, I mean, for pretty much the whole month of December so far, it's peaked a little bit out of this range, but the it's between 16,900 and 17,100, and it is just flat in that range. It's pretty amazing. And yes, it's true that this whole year has we've experienced a lot of these things, right? The price will move slightly, and then it will stay flat for a very long time. Then it will move slightly, and it'll stay flat. And if we take out, um, I don't know, let's say... 10 days out of the last six months. Those are where all of the price crashes happened, right? Other than that, Bitcoin has been extremely flat to slightly up. Um, DT had a good comment. Let me pull that up. If DT is in here, he says that this looks like when the inverted BART happens. We already broke out of that. It was bullish until FTX happened. Yeah, and I've I think I said that at the time that, you know, without FTX we would be up there twenty five to thirty thousand right now. Um, nothing but fun. Nothing is fundamentally different. We're where we are not because of anything Bitcoin related. And I think the people that matter, the hodlers and buyers of last resort, the institutions who have done real research and big investors like Kathy Wood, et cetera, understand this implicitly. Yeah, 100%. People are still accumulating. Uh, Kathy Wood even went in there and bought a bunch of GBTC and Coinbase shares, right? So 
she's uber bullish on Bitcoin. And when I hear her talk, you know, she really sounds a lot like Jeff Schneider and the stuff I say as well. So she's right in that same uh, camp thinking about deflation and thinking about growth as inflation and how that is translated into investments. So if if I were to come up with some sort of uh, portfolio of investments, it would probably be very similar to Kathy Woods, you know, at least 50% similar. And then 50%, maybe I would go more into shorting emerging markets and stuff. I don't know. But uh, he continues. That is why it didn't tank further. And it's maintained its uncanny stability since. Where will the big sellers needed to force another down leg come from? That's what I've been asking. I don't see a lot of sellers out there. Now, if you had something like um, wrapped Bitcoin being forced to sell or you see something like gbtc and grayscale somehow being forced to sell then that could be a source or you know coinbase even but i don't see that happening i don't don't even see that being a possibility so it's not worth discussing and so that's why i do see the exact same thing here that dt is seeing um there's just not any big sellers left they're all wrecked anyway i responded and said yeah also the I guess, clearing out of paper Bitcoin from the market is extremely bullish. So if there is a change to the fundamentals of Bitcoin, it's actually that this paper Bitcoin's gone and it's it's super bullish. And why the price is down here, I mean, it can't last down here for long. We'll see. I mean, if it continues to fall, we have to really evaluate all of our assumptions, really go back and question everything, how we got here, how we have been so uberly bullish on this yet price continues to go down. Uh, this will be a very good test for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. If the price continues to fall, I mean, I am super surprised that it got this low uh, in the first place. So anyway, that is, that was a good comment by DT. I'm glad to see a lot of people going back and forth here in the telegram. What else do we have? Let's get into this piece by the New York Fed. The Was it New York Fed or whatever, the Federal Reserve? And the title is The Great Retirement Boom, the Pandemic Era Surge in Retirements and Implications for Future Labor Force Participation. It's by Joshua Montez, Christopher Smith, and Juliana DeJone. Abstract. As of October 2022, the retirement share of the U.S. population was nearly one and a half percentage points above its pre-pandemic level after adjusting for updated population controls to the current population survey, according to nearly all of the shortfall in the labor force participation, uh, sorry, accounting for nearly all of the shortfall in labor force participation rate. In this paper, we analyzed the pandemic era rise in retirements using a model that accounts for pre-pandemic trends in retirement the cyclicality of retirement, and other factors. We show that more than half of the increase in the retired share are excess retirements, quote-unquote excess retirements. That would likely not have occurred in the absence of the pandemic. Excess retirements have been concentrated among cohorts age 65 and older at the start of the pandemic. 
Excess retirements have been largest among the college educated and whites and excess retirements reflect reflect in part that worker transitions from the labor force to retirement remain elevated. We also show that failing to account for updated population controls to the current population survey leads to an underestimate of the rise in the retired share over the last few years. We use a cohort-based framework to argue that looking forward, unless the pandemic has permanently affected retirement behavior, excess retirements should eventually fade as those who retired early during the pandemic reach ages uh, when they would have normally retired. Even as excess retirements fade, the retired share will remain well above its pre-pandemic level, reflecting population aging. All right, very interesting. We had a little back and forth about that, about this this morning in Telegram. Let me bring that up right here. Okay. Um, Well, first, Ryan Breen, he asked, or he says, it sounds inflationary to me. And it's not like a exactly inflationary thing here, because if you have um, more retirees, you're going to have demand actually fall because as people get older, you know, usually they don't buy houses, right? And they don't usually start their careers. And uh, that that's a, a 20s and 30s is when you really have a lot of per capita consumption. The per capita consumption falls as you age, and especially in retirement, because you're trying to stretch those last dollars or Bitcoins or Sats or whatever you want to call it uh, more to, towards the end. So you consume a lot less as you retire. So the consumption will go down, but also productivity will go down because the most productive people in the economy are those those people that have the most, usually on average, have the most experience. So the, you become the most productive in your life or in your career in your 50s and into your 60s. So as average productivity drops, you're going to have supply dropping of things, services and goods, but you also will have people demanding less. So you can't make a one-to-one comparison here and say that this is price positive. It's actually, we don't know. It it could end up to be having falling prices, um, maybe for houses even, and other big, large ticket items, you'll have falling prices. Uh, Also, when people in retire, they stop their passive investing. So as a larger segment of the population is entering retirement, you actually have less passive investing, which will prop up the stock market less. And, you know, you can see effects from that, the prices of stocks, the prices of investments falling. So it's not necessarily inflationary. I I can see why for some things that would be the case, especially with productivity gains uh, being cut at, cut down. But um, anyway, what else do we have here about when did I bring in China? Um, oh, so anyway, uh, this is what I responded to another one. I said, not a one-to-one. Lower productivity will mean lower demand for oil and other essential commodities too. We would be trying to calculate the amount productivity and demand will fall in actual goods. Kind of a fool's errand. In my opinion, it's not necessarily price positive. As for government spending, I don't know. I don't think you can squeeze blood from a turnip. So the gov, the gov will have to obey the economics of it. 
most likely the elderly will be forced to suffer lower standards of living. So yeah, you can't just spend more, right? The government, I mean, they can, I guess, but if it, if it causes adverse effects or consequences in the economy, you can't just start spending more, especially at the end of these type of credit cycles, right? You're just going to continue to have worse and worse consequences to the economy. So they're going, most likely I see that the elderly, the people that are retiring now in the next decade, they are just going to have to accept a lower standard of living, most likely. And then I posted this chart from China and I said, check out this utter collapse in China. They are now predicting less than one working age person per retiree. I don't think it has ever happened before. They can't have a functioning society period with numbers like that. And then I think in the U.S. it's about 3.5. So, yeah, if if we think it's bad here in the United States and in the West, it's way worse in China for retirement and the way that this is going to be working uh, going forward, how it's going to be negative for growth, right? It's going to be very negative for growth in China, um, which is just yet another reason. There's no reason you can go out there and name why China will become the dominant power. There is, there is nothing out there, absolutely zero that I've seen that other than people being negative on the U S right. The the only reason why people think that China will become some global hegemon or, or uh, remain a peer competitor is because they are so negative on the United States. It's not because they're positive on anything from China. You can't find anything, in my opinion. All right, so that is that. Uh, Let's do one more thing, and I'll just read my piece here from Bitcoin Magazine, and this is, again, deglobalization and the end of trust-based money. So here we go. Two forces have dominated the globe economically and politically for the last 75 years, globalization and trust-based money. However, the time for both of these factors has passed and their waning will bring about a great reset of the global order. But this is not the global Marxist kind of great reset promoted by Klaus Schwab and those who attend Davos. This is an emergent market-driven reset characterized by a multipolar world and a new monetary system. Globalization is ending. The first reaction I usually get to my claim that the end or that the age of hyper-globalization is ending is flippant disbelief. People have so completely integrated the environment of the dying global order into their economic understanding that they cannot fathom a world where the cost-to-benefit analysis of globalization is different. I remember asking Jeff Booth this, and I went back and found the episode on FedWatch when we interviewed Jeff Booth. And um, I asked him, like, hey, well, what if the input costs or what if the costs change a little bit won't globalization suffer he's like oh no i don't think so global globalization can't end globalization this is how the world is always going to be i mean not obviously in so many words but he was unable to change his thinking to uh, adapt to a world where the cost benefit analysis to globalization is different all right let's continue even after covid19 exposed the fragility of complex supply chains like when the U.S. very nearly ran out of surgical masks and basic medications, or when the world struggled to source semiconductors, 
people have yet to realize the shift that is happening. Is it that hard to imagine that the businessmen who designed such fragile, overcomplicated production processes didn't properly weigh the risks? All of this, all that is needed to break globalization is for risk-adjusted costs to change a few percentage points and outweigh the benefits. The pennies saved by outsourcing numerous tasks to numerous jurisdictions will no longer outweigh the possibility of complete collapse of supply chains. These concerns about fragile supply chains did not disappear as horrible COVID-19 policies ended. Now they have shifted to concerns about trade wars and real wars, U.S. trade sanctions against China, the Russian conflict with NATO proxy Ukraine, and subsequent sanctions, the seamless, seemingly erratic U.S. position on Taiwan, the coronation of Xi Jinping and his Marxist revival, the Nord Stream sabotage, the clear split of international consensus in the UN, and even the weaponization of these international institutions, and most recently, the Turkish ground offensive versus the Kurds. All these things should be interpreted as a rise in costs, or a rise in risk-adjusted returns, or, you know, or a decrease in risk-adjusted returns, right? Um, gone is the time when complex supply chains were robust against typical risks. The risks today are much more systemic. Sure, there are skirmish, there were skirmishes around the world and disagreements among parliaments, but great powers did not openly threaten one another's spheres of influence. Risk-adjusted costs and benefits to globalization have radically changed. Credit doesn't like conflict. Very closely related to deglobalization of supply chains is deglobalization of credit markets. The same factors that affect business people's physical risk-adjusted costs and benefits are also felt by bankers. Banks don't want to be exposed to the risk of war or sanctions wrecking their borrowers. In the current environment of deglobalization and rising risks to international trade, banks will naturally pull back on lending to those associated activities. Instead, banks will fund safer projects like fully domestic or friend-shoring opportunities. The natural reaction by banks to this risky global environment will be credit contraction. The globalization of supply chains and credit will be as closely linked on the way down as they were on the way up. It will start slowly, but pick up speed. A feedback loop of rising risk leading to shorter supply chains and less credit creation. Credit-based U.S. dollar. The prevailing form of money in the world is the credit-based U.S. dollar. Every dollar is created through debt, making every dollar someone else's debt. Money is printed out of thin air in a process of making a loan. This is different from pure fiat money. When fiat money is printed, the balance sheet of the printer adds assets alone. However, in a credit-based system, when money is printed in a loan, the printer creates an asset and a liability. The borrower's balance sheet then has an offsetting liability and asset, respectively. Every dollar or euro or yen, for that matter, is therefore an asset and a liability. And the loan that created that dollar is both an asset and a liability. This system works extremely well if two factors are present. One, highly productive uses of new credit are available. And two, a relative lack of exogenous shocks to the global economy. 
Change either of these things and a breakdown is bound to occur. This dual nature of credit-based money is at the root of both the dollar's spectacular rise in the 20th century and the coming monetary reset. As global trust and supply and supply chains break down, the commingling of assets in banks become more risky. Russia found this out the hard way when the West confiscated its reserves of dollars held in banks abroad. And actually, they didn't confiscate them yet. I think they're just frozen. And uh, they're trying to find a way to legally confiscate them. How is trust possible in that sort of environment? When credit-based money's creation is based on trust, Houston, we have a problem. Bitcoin's role in the future. Luckily, we have experience with a world that doesn't trust itself, i.e. the entire history of man prior to 1945. <laughs> Back then, we were on a uh, gold standard for reasons which included all those that Bitcoiners are very familiar with. Gold scores highly in the characteristics that make good money, but also because it minimizes trust between great powers. Gold lost its mantle for one reason, and you've probably heard you pro and you've probably never heard this anywhere before, because the global economic, political, and innovation environment post World War II created an extremely fertile soil for credit. Trust was easy. The major powers were humbled and all joined the new international institutions under the security umbrella of the U.S. The Iron Curtain provided a stark separation between zones of trust economically. But after it fell, there was a period of roughly 20 years where the world sang kumbaya because new credit was still extremely productive in the old Soviet Union, Soviet bloc and China. Today, we are facing the opposite sort of scenario. Global trust is eroding and credit has exploited all possible, well, sorry, our, all productive low-hanging fruit, forcing us into a period that demands neutral money. The world will soon find itself split between regions slash alliances of influence. A British bank will trust a U.S. bank where a Chinese bank will not. To bridge this gap, we need money that everyone can hold and respect. Gold versus Bitcoin. Gold would be the first choice here, if not for Bitcoin. This is because gold has several drawbacks. First, gold is owned mainly by those groups who are losing trust in one another, namely the governments of the world. Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Much of the gold is held in the United States. Therefore, gold is unevenly distributed. Second, gold's physical nature once a positive holding profligate governments in check is now a weakness because it cannot be transported or assayed nearly as effectively as Bitcoin. Lastly, gold is not programmable. Bitcoin is a neutral decentralized protocol that can be tapped for any number of innovations. The lightning network and side chains are just two examples of how Bitcoin can be programmed to increase its utility as globalization of both trade and sorry, as globalization of both trade and credit is breaking down, the economic environment favors a return to a form of money that doesn't depend on trust between major powers. Bitcoin is the modern answer. And that is the end of this article. All right. Well, now what I'm going to do is open it up to you guys on Telegram. Twitter spaces never cranked up. So uh, I hate the thing I hate about that is I tweet out the space. You know, I create the space. I tweet it out. I say, hey, join me over here in a few minutes. And then it doesn't, it crashes or it doesn't load up and it looks bad. So anyway, I'm going to continue trying spaces. I just hope they get that fixed, fixed up.
anyway, I will open it up here, guys. Raise your hand if you have any topics you want to talk about here. Comments on the news cycle. Comments on Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price, or anything like that. While I'm waiting, I will... Oh, here we go, AJ. Bringing you on. What's up, man? I can't hear you, AJ. Oh, no. oh you can hear me. No, here we go. Yeah, I got you. Sorry, yeah. Um... Yeah, I really like your thoughts on deglobalization. I find them interesting. Um, do you have any more like insights into how this will play out? Like, what wh- what is your opinion? Is this mostly like supply chains, or do you think this also uh, will affect like the possibility to travel and mm. you know to live abroad and whatever? You know, we're in a country where we're not a citizen. Or what what are your general thoughts on that? Yeah, very good question. Um, I've thought about this a lot because I would like my kids to travel. I haven't traveled a ton in, you know, I've been to maybe five or six countries, something like that. I would like to travel more in my retirement and things. And I would like my kids and my grandkids to be able to travel. So um, that, that means a lot to me, but, oh man, um, I think you still will be able to you still will be able to travel. I'm trying to think back on, let's go back to like the year 1800. Really the restrictions on travel weren't necessarily your like nationality um, or like your government. There weren't maybe restrictions on nationalities. Like the English could still travel in France and uh, Americans could still go to Japan or whatever. Uh, but the the main restrictions were from just the technology, you know, not being able to get there. That was before airplanes and the it was expensive to really travel around. Now we have technology that will enable that much easier. So I would say, no, it might even be easier to travel. And if you're in a West, Western country that will be relatively more uh, rich, then you will be able to travel more probably to other places because it'll be very cheap. If you think it's cheap today to travel to South America or, you know, um, Southeast Asia, it's going to be way cheaper in the future. So uh, yeah, you'll probably be able to travel more, but I haven't thought a ton about it. I've just uh, hoped that we wouldn't have like global wars where, yeah, certain continents were off limits to travel because that would be uh just a sad state of affairs but um yeah that's what i have to say does that what do you think aj uh you know i uh, i think it would be possible to travel and i think maybe it'll be like you say uh there'll be maybe bigger differences economically between regions so i think maybe regions will be even more inclined to attract uh wealthy foreigners Yes. Uh, so I think we'll see, maybe we'll see more of, you know, yeah, like trying to attract wealthy foreigners and not as much the whole world. Yeah. If you, if you see, especially for like, especially for getting, not, not just for visiting, but for living. I think you'll see more of like, you'll see like the big blocks, the US and the EU, they will start to, and they're already doing it, start to uh, lo- like crack down on, on golden visas and stuff like that, or like, citizen by invest citizenship by investment 
yeah they're gonna like yeah but i think those thing those kind of programs in the end are gonna be even more so like would you say there's gonna be even more of that so um would you say that the western countries would actually try to stop people from moving abroad and so there might be some sort of extra tax like let's say yes. you're you're and an american yeah that's already happening yeah uh let me give you an example so in norway yeah. uh, the Nor- in norway the the left-wing government that came into power uh this uh this fall and let me tell you left-wing this is left-wing norwegian style this is not left-wing american style so this is basically communism in the in the in the in the american lingo uh, okay. more or less uh, and they so they are really they have presented their plan for the coming year like the budget and it's really really horrible and a lot of really rich norwegians have already this fall moved out like one of the richest ones he that was like a big thing in norway because he moved to switzerland like two months ago mm. so the co- the communist party which has a few seats in the parliament they are like they're they are really pushing for a harder exit tax tax and more more fences like it won't be possible, but the exit tax will be bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sweden has done similar, not as draconian, but similar things the past decade or so. So yeah, these things are definitely mm-hmm. happening because the well, especially the the welfare states, they 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 want to keep their tax cattle inside, right? Absolutely. Well, in Norway, then is it like when you live abroad, you do not have to pay like income tax to the Norwegian government, right? That's right. So, yeah, like this is the only, as you probably know, only America and uh, only the U.S. and Eritrea in the world that has that. But in Norway, you have to when you move out, you have to you are liable for taxes for three years and then you then they let you go. Mm. But you have to prove that you're paying taxes somewhere else. Then they let you go. Right. Very interesting. Well, maybe more countries will go the route of the U.S. and keep harvesting taxes from you. Um, I now fully how, expect that. I fully expect that. Now, how enforceable is that, though? Um, like a smaller country like Norway, like what's the population of Norway? Five million. Five million. So, yeah, if you have five million or 10 million or whatever, you're, you're in one of those, uh, you know, less populated places that doesn't have the powerful reach to go out there and grab that money from the individual. Like the U.S. can go anywhere in the world and grab that money from their tax sheep but uh maybe there will they'll try to impose it and well you know what they might even say like you can't come back into the country uh visit your home country if you don't pay the taxes so yeah that that would be there's a lot of topics here that we could get into it's very very interesting but i hope that it becomes i hope it comes easier for people to travel in the future which it might yeah, I, ho- I hope you're right. Thanks. Uh, thanks. And if you ever come to Europe, let me know. I'll show you around. All right. Thanks. I did watch a, I watched a YouTube video of this guy that he goes around to all these kind of exotic places and not the, you know, typical tourist stuff. Like he went to some of the Portuguese islands and he went up to Norway and he was going around all over the place. So, um, yeah, beautiful country. Anyway, all right. Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yep. All right. Anybody else got just a few minutes left here? Field another question or comment while waiting here. You guys can still raise your hand on Telegram, but uh, I'll just wrap it up with the admin notes.
for the podcast. So guys, uh, if you're listening on the podcast app, this is a Telegram live stream. I do it over on t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Make sure you signed up for the free newsletter. And if you like this type of content and you want to support me for $5 a month, that's where you would do it. Follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Try don't join the spaces because <laughs> it is just horrible, man. It's like hit or miss. I definitely recommend joining Telegram and ju- jumping on the live stream on Telegram. Okay, any other hands? All right, that's going to do it, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for the um, participation on Telegram and in the live streams here. And I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Bye.